Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar. Enjoy listening and watching as addiction experts Mark Sheeran and I cover controversial as well as helpful topics on addiction, how to move past it, and other related subjects. As two of the co-founders of the Freedom Model, Mark and I will give you a completely new perspective on the topics that matter to you. We will take to task the Recovery Society's lies and misinformation and replace them with facts, research, and the methods to move on from addiction struggles without 12-step meetings, rehabs, and the shackles of endless recovery. Let's escape the treatment and recovery trap together and learn to be free. Welcome to the truth. How much time, energy, and resources have you invested in helping someone that's struggling with an addiction only to watch them keep going back to it? You don't want to give up on them, but you're fast giving up hope that they'll ever change. Well, you can step off the addiction roller coaster and find a solution that'll work for both of you. Join addiction experts, hosts of the popular podcast, The Addiction Solution, and authors of The Freedom Model for Addictions, Mark Sharon, and me, Michelle Dunbar, to learn a solution that'll provide you and your loved one freedom from the addiction battle for good. It's called Families Moving Past Addiction Masterclass, and it's a three-hour live online free event where you'll hear information about addiction we guarantee you've never heard before. So if you love someone struggling with an addiction, then this masterclass is for you. To enroll, click the link provided and register soon for the date that works for you because each masterclass will only have 50 participants. We'll see you at the class. We want to send you a free copy of our revolutionary book, The Freedom Model for Addictions. To help us bring this incredible gift to you, we ask that you pay a small fee for shipping. Learn how tens of thousands of people have permanently solved their addictions without steps or meetings and make 2023 your best year yet. Give yourself or someone you love the gift of total freedom from addiction. Click on the link to get your free copy sent to you today. Welcome to the Addiction Solution. I'm Michelle Dunbar. And I'm Mark Sheeran. And we wrote... Along with Stephen Slate. Along with Stephen Slate, the Freedom Model for Addictions, this book right here, and the Freedom Model for the Family. We also have this nifty workbook. So if you go to, and the only way to get this is either by getting the online program, doing coaching, or if you go to freebook.freedommodel.org and you order a free paperback, you pay for shipping, you can buy this workbook. Um, That's the only other way you can get it. So, um, so yeah, freebook.freedommodel.org, and we're still giving away that book. Yeah, that's right. We've given away hundreds now. We have. Um, actually, over the course of the tenure of the book, we've given away nearly oh, 5,000 yeah. or something crazy. Yeah, because we've been giving away digital copies of it since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you can still do that to you if you prefer to get a digital copy on your a mobile device, you can go to the freedommodel.org and enter coupon code freedom 100 at checkout. You see, we want people to have the solution and the solution to addiction is contained in our book. So um, I just want to make note of a couple of things. First, we're looking down because we have a, a setup. Soon we will have a new studio. Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, the, ca- the camera is actually up there. It's just uh, because we have a, an inadequate 
set up here. Um, so if you're watching this, that's why we are looking away from the camera. Uh, number two is I had helmet head because I rode the bike in today. So that's why I have a hat on. <laughs> I think it looks fine. <laughs> uh, like, tell him it looks fine. Well, I just don't want people thinking, wow, what an amateur, you know? No, uh, and, not I'm at all. So unprofessional. But the truth is it was a nice day and I wanted to ride the Harley. Right. And he's advertising for Harley. So there yeah, you go. Harley. There you go, Harley. Free, free, free plug. <laughs> okay. So what we're going to talk about today is, I, you know, every once in a while when we were trying to find a topic, we take the book and we just kind of open it to a random page. And today, the random page we opened to is chapter nine, learning the addict self-image and the playground effect. And if you haven't seen it, everybody should watch Stephen Slate's TED Talk. It's called Our Relationship with Our to addiction. Mm -hmm. um, but if you just Google Ted talk, Stephen slate addiction, it'll, it'll be the first one to pop up. It's really fabulous. Um, he did it in 2016 when he was writing this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's awesome. And, um, well, you're going to read I'm gonna a part read, of it. Uh, a part of it. Okay. This is on, um, this is on the first page of chapter nine and it says the playground effect follows people into adulthood too. Um, much of how people define their problems in themselves is based on how others define them. It's clear how this occurs in treatment programs. People arrive in treatment with various self-images. Many, not all, feel as if they're fully in control, even if they realize their substance use is the source of problems. They're like the child on the playground. They realize there's an issue, but they don't think it's the end of the world yet. Then the counselors confront their denial and demand that they see their problem through the tragic lens of recovery ideology. And I want to say one thing about the playground effect for anybody that might not know what that is. Maybe there's a, a language, you know, uh, that's something we talk about here in the U.S., but I know we get people that listen from all over the world. And so what the playground effect is, is, you know, you're you're on the playground with your kid and there's a bunch of other moms and dads on the playground with their kids and, you know, you know, your child runs and falls and skins their knee, how you react is going to be. It's going to shape the way they think the about way that they situation. think about that particular situation. Right. So are you, are you the, the parent that runs over and it's, it's a big trial? Oh no. You know, you kind of freak out a little bit. Um, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, your kid will look to you. Like I can remember three boys. I, I can remember you know, they look to you to see if it's a tragedy or not. Yeah. How am I supposed to respond to this? Yeah, it hurts a little bit. Um, but if you're so, if you're somebody like me that, you know, I'd be reading my book and I'd be, you know, like, hey, you're fine. You're fine. Because that's the way my mother raised us. Um, they'll get up and keep playing nine times out of 10, you know, even if their knee is scraped up. Yeah. So how does that play into addiction? Uh, the way that plays in is, is um, people, families anybody close to a substance user, our government, world government really now. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Plays up this idea that uh, if you drink and drug with any consistency whatsoever, sometimes not even that, um, that you're an addict, that you have an incurable disease, that it's tragic. Lifelong. That it's that. Yeah, that it's and and it becomes it becomes a part of if you get enough of this. And I certainly lived through this. I know Michelle did too. We yeah. grew, we grew up in the talk of hyperbole, you know, the the crazy talk. Um, you're an addict. You're going to be an addict if you start drinking and drugging. I was told that at seven years old. Um, and me at ten. Yeah, mm -hmm. and 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 consequently, 
when I started drinking and drugging um, and I got drunk the first few times I and high, I, I instantly thought, oh my God, I'm going to be an addict. Yep. And, uh, and so I started to frame it this way, which is really strange. If you're able to separate yourself from recovery ideology and say, what if that that counselor or that message didn't exist because prior to 1939, it didn't exist. No, there was no, there was no addict language. There was no um, idea of denial. There was no idea of loss of control. There was no idea of powerlessness. Um, these things just didn't exist. So people behaved very differently. Yeah. But there was already, there was already this idea that alcohol was somehow supernatural. Yes, that has been a part of alcohol because that's the marketing. <laughs> right? That's been a part of it forever, that it has these magical properties. So it wasn't a very strong push That's right. to, to tell people, oh, alcohol can enslave you. Yes, yes. Right? And so, yes. but the other part of it- And drugs. And, and drugs, drugs, right? But the other part of it didn't really- come in with the other part I'm saying you as an individual are powerless that came along later and that came along to explain those people that drank heavily to the exclusion of other things and there were people you know using using opiates morphine heavily to the exclusion of other things but they were a tiny percentage they still are a tiny percentage of the overall population right um but that tiny percentage has probably tripled, you know, I mean, right. Still as the narrative has increased and spread. Exactly. And now it's kind of like, it's like a, like a, a problem like that everybody experiences within their families. Well, this is, this is what, what that's called is normalizing, right? We have yeah. normalized powerlessness. We have normalized that the drug has power and that you don't which is false. It's simply not true. Uh, there isn't a shred of evidence that says that a drug can overtake your mind. Um, nowhere can you find that in the real research. You'll find that in, in people that have a vested interest. They say things like that. You know, the pharmaceutical companies certainly want you to believe that your brain is biohacked and that you, you can't stop. It's complete bullshit. Right. I mean, there's no, it's absolute total bunk. Um, but but it doesn't. So, so the marketing has been, look at alcohol and drugs are a currency or a world currency. It's the one thing that flows through nearly every society in the world. I really, I don't know if I found a society that didn't have some, some way to alter consciousness. Right. I mean, whether it's, it's ritual or exactly they, people have been doing it forever. Right. And so, so I talk about it in, in terms of a currency because it's a universal language and, and it's the way uh, it's why prohibition didn't work here in America and why it was such a dismal failure. It's because people weren't going to get rid of their currency and they weren't going to get rid of the thing that the booze companies had developed, which is the magic of stress relief. Right. And that myth fun in a bottle. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Calling it spirits. Right. Um, this myth that, Drugs and alcohol have this capacity to make you think differently, that they contain addictiveness, that they have powers. That is just damn good marketing. But along with that comes the flip side, and that is if you use them a lot, then they become a demon. 
then their powers turn on you and you become powerless to their allure and and all kinds of tragic shit happens. But it's the belief. It is the belief. And and what Stephen says, because Stephen wrote this chapter, and what he's saying in here is, is absolutely true. The vast majority of people, the first time they're stuck in treatment or somebody comes to them and says, you have a problem. And I can, I, this was true for me, even though I was raised to believe that I would become an alcoholic, I, you know, even when I was using daily and heavily, I knew I had some control and, you know, yeah. it's, so the first time people get into treatment, nearly everyone knows, well, I can stop this if I want to. And they'll say it, they'll say, I can take it or leave it. Right. And so when I, I can remember when I, when the intervention happened with me and I said that, I'm like, well, I really can take it or leave it because, because I knew I could, right. you know, I was told I was in denial and that wasn't true. And, and so that's how this, you start to learn the addict self image and you start to selectively think of memories where you fit the criteria. Yeah, that's a that's a real wild phenomenon. So let's go back to the playground effect. Can we do that yeah. for a second? So um, I remember having uh, two people, two, myself and my aunt. My aunt was a German lady who grew up in an orphanage for the first five years of her life and was not paid attention to. Then grew up during World War II in Germany and... Uh, and then came to the States and helped my mother raise us kids. My mother left and my aunt, but she was almost developmentally disabled in ways. She was, she was a strange cat, never mm. married, never had kids, never uh, was asexual, was just a-, a You guys were her life. Yeah. She was a saint. She really was mm -hmm. a saint. But here's something that's interesting about her. She did not feel pain the way other human beings felt pain. She had never seen a doctor until uh, hmm. the last year of her life when she was 90 something, 92, 91. Um, well, are you and, talk about the broken yeah. bones. <laughs> and so, so at one point, uh, ten, about 10 years prior in her early eighties, she broke her elbow, smashed her elbow and broke both the bones in the forearm part of her and, and in the upper, basically she had no elbow and she, she never, she just winced and she's moving arms. She's like, yeah, yeah, I don't need to go to the hospital. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, stop moving your arm. Like it's like flopping it around. <laughs> and, and she, she's like, no, it's fine. And then when she went to the hospital, there's a point to the story. Then yeah. she went to the hospital and they had to put pins and screws and everything. This was the first time really she had an experience in the hospital. And when, when they asked her, you know, what medications do, they, do you take? She, she said she didn't, she didn't, you know, she had never had an antibiotic in her life. She, and so she was, uh, she in her eighties, early eighties. She, she had, and she walked, you know, five to 10 miles a day in her eighties. She climbed mountains with me. I mean, she's an extraordinary woman, but it was complete mindset. She didn't yes. know, like there was never anybody in her whole life to ever tell her that it, when she felt pain, what that was. So she did not react to things. Ironically, she healed her elbow healed six times faster than the average person with the same surgery in and their eighties. And, and I mean, I consider that because you don't heal very quickly in your eighties, right? The bones were all fused. She could all, everything was done in less than four weeks and they had never seen this before. And, and she said, you know, I don't need physical therapy and life had moved on. So mindset has an extraordinary 
uh, part to play in how we view the world and how much of a victim we feel. She did not know victimhood. She didn't understand that concept in that way. Now, emotionally, she had other issues. But but so I grew up uh, taking care of this woman and also having no parents. So I was in this weird position that was almost like my aunt's position in, in childhood where I would hurt myself and there was nobody there to say that it was, it, it was, was bad. bad. So right. I, so in my teen years, I had a, a friend of mine, ironically, that is Michelle's husband who would say, my God, you can, you can just take pain. You, you don't, mm. you know, I break my leg or something. I wouldn't cry. And, you know, I just be like, well, this is what we got to do. And, and so I, th I really think the playground effect when it comes to drugs and alcohol, we've gone completely psychotic in our, in our nation yes. where we have created an entire industry and we have created overdose. We have created or increased rates of overdose. Overdose yes. has always existed, but in, in tiny percentages. But the more we use this crazy hyperbole that drugs have these massive powers and that we're in a uh, overdose crisis, now we have created yes. a crisis. They, they called it a crisis 100,000 deaths ago. Right. You know, I mean, right. when, it, when it first was first called a crisis and oh, by the way, you know, opiate overdose isn't what it seems. Um, the overdose rates sky, like started to go up quickly when fentanyl was introduced to the drug supply. Right. The drug supply became tainted. Right. The Chinese. Yeah. And Chinese it, infiltration. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then we created this. I, I mean, the, the the way the opiate problem is going and we had a a woman on from the doctor patient forum. Right, Bev Schechtman. Yeah, who, who like explained what's really happening to chronic pain patients. I mean, the hysteria is so great that anytime you base policy on like fear and misinformation, you're only going to make the problem worse. And that's exactly what's happened. So, I mean, this is the playground effect on steroids. Yeah, that's so that's on the macro level, the playground effect on the macro level. Now, of course, me and Michelle want to say that we're not denigrating the, the horrors of overdose. Oh, gosh, no. But, but what we're talking about is the numbers, right? And how did the numbers in this tragedy and this, this trend, how did it develop? It developed from crazy talk. Yes. And that, you know, and, and what I mean by that, I'm not being funny here. I'm saying, saying that opiates have these powers to addict you, um, as if they, as if they have a motive or some chemical action that is going to make you take them. Um, and I know when I'm saying this, there are people out there going, yeah, they do. Well, they don't, they don't. And we have a chapter an appendice on that's the last appendix in the book. If you have any questions no, it's the about that appendix D. Oh, it's, oh, oh, right, right. Right. Appendix D. Right. It's a heroin and the myth of addictiveness. Right. And that was originally part of the book. And we pulled it out because we knew um, not everybody needed to, to see it, but everybody does need to see it. Yeah. Everybody does need to understand that that this is a myth, that it's not real. And and the hysteria that's been created around it is actually feeding the problem because now we have policies that are saying that people you know, oh, we have billboards that show a kid, an 18, a 17 year old breaking his leg and somebody saying, if you give him opiates, he's going to be, you know, go out and use heroin. Well, no, there's no data to support that. Why would you like set that up? Yeah, it's it's and that's what I mean by crazy talk, right? Yeah. It's, why? Why would we be setting up the playground effect? Why would we be 
hysterical and say something that isn't true. Right. Now, is there somebody out there who took pain pills and then because of a broken leg and then ended up using heroin? Of course. I mean, I, I, just in the law of averages, you're going to have all kinds of reasons but why it's people. A teeny tiny but, percentage. But it's, teeny but, tiny. But it's also, it's also not true that that person was caused to be addicted Correct. by the drug. You know, they chose it because they preferred it. They liked the high and they, they liked the way it made them feel. That's right. And they may be using down the line consistently and causing withdrawal. And that might be a factor in their decision making where they say, I don't want to deal with this drug uh, with withdrawal. So I'll continue to take the drug. Um, and now I can't get the pill. So I got to use heroin. I get all that. Yep. But it's still decision making. So to take it out of the realm is the playground effect is the hysteria. You now don't have any choice but to go to treatment, you know. Such bullshit. It's it's purely designed to put people in rehabs, to put people in the industry, to make their $42 billion. And and now we're just and the drug, the pharmaceutical companies that we demonize for producing opiates are now shifting over to Suboxone and Gabapentin and all this. It's all just money. Yep. It's Follow all the money. just money. And people don't realize they're being played with fear. Now, I want to talk about interventions. Interventions take the playground effect to the nth degree. And this yeah. is what Stephen said about it in the chapter. In a formal group intervention, the playground effect is taken to the nth degree. The substance user is coerced to sit in a room while all her loved ones spout dire predictions of the devastation she'll face if she doesn't get treatment. Where this isn't just a prediction of the inevitable consequences of substance use, it's also a promise that the loved ones will do something to ruin her quality of life. The professional interventionist says, the professional interventionist says he's seen a thousand other people just like you die, so you'd better take this seriously. At this point, many substance users begin to take it so seriously that they believe their problem is worse than it actually is. Like the child on the playground, if they had been allowed to interpret their issues at face value, they'd seem more manageable to them. But after an intervention, your issues redefine you as hopelessly doomed. Yeah, so that's a propaganda process, right? Where you take, quote unquote, a professional. A professional interventionist. And and 95% of professional interventionists are uh, are people that have don't have a ton of training. They're usually people in the recovery society. And they're being paid by the highest bidding rehab. Well, here's what they, they double dip because they get paid by the family yeah. uh, to the tune of five to $10,000 for one intervention. They at the, that's the going rate is about five grand or more, depending on who you get and where you live and how much money they think you have. And then the, uh, then they also, now this became illegal, but I know it still goes on. They also are paid by the treatment program. Um, so one intervention, they make five figures, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole point, once again, in an intervention by the interventionist is to scare you into abstinence through treatment to make money. Yep. Yeah. So you have to understand that that's the game. Now the family. The, hold on though. Under the guise of helping you. Of course. Right. Of right. course. Yeah. Yeah. It's really twisted. Um, 
And I think that most interventionists, if you took away the uh, money they would receive from the treatment center, you know, the kickback, I think that you'd you'd see two thirds of them not be in the industry No, no, because no. that's all gravy. That's all. What do they care? You yeah, know, no, right. You, you Whether shuff- you go to treatment or not, they're getting paid. That's right. So they're getting paid on the front end, and then they get this nice chunk of change coming back from the like insurance dollars. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's such a a ridiculously obvious scam. But when you're a family mm. and you're desperate and you don't want to deal with the problem anymore and you're exhausted. Well, and you're scared. I mean, because yeah. if you it's call terrible. a treatment program, here's the other thing that happens. The treatment program uses the playground effect with the families. So the, you call you your son. Um, you found out your son is using heroin. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's 21 years old. And and you call it, you're terrified because you know these his friend overdosed. That's how you found out, right? That's a really common scenario. And so you call a treatment program and they say, and you say, oh, uh, my son doesn't want to go to rehab. He doesn't, he doesn't want, and the, the treatment program will, will scare the bejeebers out of you. They'll say, oh, he's going to die. If he doesn't get here, he's going to die. Oh, we know an interventionist. Yeah. That's what you need to set up. And then- Thus becomes the process of setting this intervention up. Now, I, I, you know, I haven't been involved with interventions in a really long time, but back in the day, I don't know if they're still like this, you know, you'd get, they would, you would recruit his best friend from childhood, um, his aunt Tilly, who was very close to him growing up, um, his siblings at both parents. And there may be five or six people plus a paid interventionist in a room with poor Johnny. And they all have these letters they're going to read to him to tell him how, you know, the horrible things he's done and how scared they are and how they've made their, how he's made their lives miserable with his behaviors. And it goes on and on and on. And so Johnny's sitting there now. Johnny may not, you know, he may already feel pretty bad because his friend died and he may already be considering maybe I should not be doing this as much. But but now for all the people out there that are listening that have had a substance use problem, I know you're this is cringy because you're thinking, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Or if that happened to me, forget it now to on a very smaller scale, it happened to me. And it sent me on. I it made me feel utterly alone like a huge piece of shit and suicidal. Yeah. So, so, so what's the, what's the alternative? You know, one of the things we do in our master class with families, which we, we do every couple of weeks, by the way, for um, free. Yeah. For free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't charge five grand. No, because this shit's um, important. Yeah. Is, is we show people that if you provide positive outcomes or the hope of a pri- positive outcome. Um, people tend to be motivated to go in that direction. Well, and you're not hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you, we want to like, well, I always would say to my staff in training, we want to minimize drama, lower panic, lower the panic and maximize positivity, helpful information. This is a hopeful situation. This is not a tragedy by any means. Right. And then, and then if you can show the family that they can be happy. Yes. 
And you can show the individual that there's a way out of all these problems that isn't a process of feeling deprived, miserable, and that it's a recovery battle for the rest of your life. If you, you show them that you don't need any of those things, none of them, and you show the family, hey, you're entitled to some happiness, peace, and a guiltless existence as well. People are naturally going to go, I want that. Yes. You know, yes. There, that makes sense. Yeah. There's <laughs> progress is about getting to a place where there's no downsides with this. There's no reason you've already dealt with the pain. Yeah. There's no reason to make more of it. And, and that's something that, you know, AA, the treatment centers, and we go through this in the master class in detail, but, but this idea that you got to hit rock bottom and that you have to have tough love and all these negative things, you know, and, and I grew up in that. I grew up in that culture. I grew up in the punitive treatment system. Um, I spent 18 months in, in a intensive outpatient rehab and, and other counseling stuff uh, throughout my life and therapies. Never once did somebody just say, hey, you're a normal kid who screwed up and, and it's time to start building a life. And did you know that you could get over your addiction? Fine. You know, that, that you were going to be okay. Nobody ever said that. Simple words like that never, ever happened. It was always, you know, you're biohacked. Your genes conspire against you. You're screwed for life, you know, and you have to go to, it was such a downer. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were 18. I was 18 and in real trouble. And, and the thought of being, I mean, I was 22, I was 21 when I, the intervention happened with me and the thought of being an alcoholic and addict for life having to make my whole world about recovery uh, from, well, from I, childhood. Yeah. That's what put the gun in my mouth. That's when I was like, I can't do this. And I became suicidal. I drinking and drugging didn't make me suicidal. I, I, it didn't, I, I didn't like it anymore. And I had withdrawal and all that no, kind of me miserable neither, stuff. Now but, that you mention it. Yeah. It wasn't that it was, there was a deep loneliness and confusion when yeah. I was getting drunk all the time, but but really what it came down to for me was the reason the freedom model exists is because when I went to treatment, it was so abysmal and I, I saw a world of lifeless dead people. You know where you can see that? Mm. You want If you want to see what AA is like on a macro level, go to a hardcore casino and look at about 50% of the people there, their eyes are dead. Now, 50% Just, are having a blast. You're, you're talking about the ones that the ones that. <laughs> Mark and I laugh. I'm not a casino person. I just, I'm not, I, I like watching people there, but like I, one of my first experiences really, I was like in my forties and we had gone to this resort. Um, it was a, it was a, on the reservation. It was, uh, yeah. yeah a, a casino in New York. We only were allowed to have, um, native American casinos. And so, we went there for a, we had like a, an, like an offsite meeting and cause I had a nice spa there, a nice golf course and stuff, but it had this casino. So we're, we're down there and I don't know, it's like when I, the last time I'd been to a casino, I was 12 years old and they had the slot machines had the levers and it was kind of fun and everything was like, ding, 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 ding. you know, it was like everything was happening really fast. But now once I went the slot machines were not really slot, they were just little computers and you stick a card in and you, push buttons and things like happen, but you don't really know what's happening. And I went to sit down 
to just a nickel machine or whatever. And this woman's like, this little, little old lady. And she was sitting up in the cart and she had a drink and a cigarette. Right. Because you could smoke in the in the casinos. She had a drink and a cigarette and they would just kept bringing her drinks. And she goes, no, no, dear. Don't you sit there. And I was like three. She and then I so then I moved down one more. She goes, no, I have this whole row. And I was like, oh, OK. And I, I just got up and walked away and I just kept looking back at her and they're bringing her more drinks. And I'm like, she was probably in her. She's probably only in her 60s. She looked 80 years old and dead eyes. Yeah. dead just yeah, sitting sad. there pushing buttons and i'm thinking did she like if she likes it okay great i'm not judging it but but like she spent like this is how she spends her time yeah so so my point is is that you see people like that and it, when you're in recovery that's what it becomes because each day goes into the next day and you're living one day at a time one day at and a time. you can't plan you can't project and you you have to live in this fear place and in this hopelessness it, and then they say strength and hope you know and and it's all bullshit because you you look around and you know that's nobody here is being as they say in aa rocketed into the fourth dimension yeah, no, of existence right nobody's Dude. truly happy joyous and free now that's, right. that's not to say because the truth of the matter is that that you know the first couple years that we were all together there was a group of us um that be, had become really close and we had a blast, but we weren't doing AA. We really weren't we doing were AA. We, we we had been taught you can be okay. That's right. And you, the only reason to be here at the meetings is to tell everybody else that they can be okay. So as you can imagine, we became heretics in the meetings. Yeah, they didn't which like was us. stressful. And then we got kicked out. And then AA. we got kicked out. Yeah, <laughs> and people, we had to make our own. Yeah, yeah. That that was just all of that was just a train wreck. But the one thing that wasn't was the fact that we were motivated. The point we were is, motivated. We were moving forward in our yeah, lives. And we weren't living under the playground effect and the hysteria and the hyperbole. And we weren't trying to hit rock bottom or live desperately or keeping it green. We weren't talking about getting drunk and high and drunk logs. We weren't living in the past. We were moving forward. And so if there's one thing that I could say okay. as a tie up to this playground effect is if somebody's filling you with more fear, don't listen to them. Run away. Don't listen to They're them. They're not though. helpful. That's not helpful. There's nothing helpful about that. You have to move forward. Your mind works on the positive drive principle. It's always going to work based on a positive motivation somewhere in your decision making. And if you don't see something more positive, you will go back to the poisoned well because you don't know any better. You don't know any other options. My point is live forward thinking and, and then you can live in the moment and live forward, plan and then act, plan and act, plan and act and build your life. But well, you're not going to do that if you're living with a whole bunch of nonsense holding you back. Well, that's it. When I, when I got with my husband and I've told this story before, there were a whole bunch of people that were doomsaying. For the both of us, you're killing each other. They told us you're killing each other. You can't. And so the, all of this playground effect too is all based on worst case scenarios and, and that everybody is exactly the same. Right. You're all ingredients in a cake. Yep. Yeah. And, and, that, and it's not true. You're an individual. You have your mental autonomy. And thank God that I, I knew that. Do you know what I mean? I knew I was like, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. Ultimately, I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and thank God. Yeah. I thank mean, I, I, there's children that wouldn't, that are here that wouldn't be here now. 
<laughs> if yeah. I had listened right. to everybody. And so, so that's the other part of it. If somebody's, if you can, when you go into recovery, you're pigeonholed into this caricature that is, well, all addicts are the same. All addicts lie. All addicts, you know, what you fill in the blank of negativity. All addicts are selfish and self-absorbed and narcissistic and all of these things. And it's like, no, no, people are totally autonomous. And the vast majority of people that I met in recovery, honestly, were wonderful people. They were wonderful people who had a strong, and the people that we've worked with over the years, tens of thousands, are most of them are wonderful people who have a strong preference for being high or drunk. Right. That's it. Right. So um, if you want to learn more about all of this, let's wrap it up. Yep. If you want to learn more about this, uh, we have the Families Moving Past Addiction Masterclass. Uh, when is the next one? Okay. So this, we're recording this podcast a week before it's going to be released. So then the very next one will probably be right around the day that this is released, um, which will be, oh no, Wednesday, April 19th. Um, and that's from two to 5 PM. But if this is released and you're seeing it or listening to it later, the next one after that is Star Wars day, May the 4th. And it will be at noontime and we're, we're doing, we're experimenting with different times um, so we can get as many people to be able to do this as possible. Um, and I know that there are a lot of listeners overseas. Um, and so noon may be a little bit better for the people um, in Europe. Yep. Um, and because uh, then it's only evening time there. So it'll be from, that's May 4th from noon to three. And then there'll always be announcements on, uh, if you, if you want to learn more, go to the freedommodel.org and hit the family resources tab at the top. Yep. At the top. And then below that in the drop down menu, you'll see the, the book, the freedom model for the family book, but you'll also see family masterclass. So if you hit that, it will go to the page where you can see the dates, the upcoming and, dates and register. Yep. And remember it's free. So, um, I encourage any family that's, that's gone through any of what we talked about today, uh, you know, you, you need this because if you want peace, we can show you how to have peace. Yeah. And, in you know, if you are the substance user and your family is not understanding what you're doing with the freedom model, they're asking you why you're not yep. going to meetings. Yep. Um, you know, this will be, this is really great for them. And in that way you can say to them, you know, sometimes I tell people have them read the freedom model for the family. And if they're not willing to do that, there's nothing you can really do to help them. But maybe if they're not willing to read a book, they would be willing to sit through a two to three hour interactive seminar. Or you always have Freedom Model online program that has uh, tutorials for the family, 12, yes. 12 tutorials for the family. So we, we cover this in, in a variety of ways. So you could do a masterclass live with us. You could do the online program where the family and you, all the information is there yes. for you and the family is all included in that. Um, and for that, you go to online.thefreedommodel.org. Um, we have all these things built for you. And if you participate in the masterclass, we have great, great like discounts and coupons available for our products. Um, so that's another really good reason to come. One last thing for housekeeping is the... Um, we're giving away to any veteran oh, yeah, that's or right. active uh, military personnel for free. The 
Are you struggling with a drug or alcohol problem, but you don't want to go to rehab or group meetings? That's why we created the non-12-step Freedom Model Coaching Program in 2011. Through video conferencing on Zoom or Skype, you can work privately with a certified Freedom Model Coach from your home or office on your schedule. And here's the best part. With the Freedom Model, you'll never be labeled an addict or an alcoholic, and we won't tell you to go to 12-step meetings or hamper your life with endless recovery rituals. Instead, you can learn exactly why addiction isn't a disease and how you can solve the problem for good and move on with your life. Do you want to be completely free from your addiction? Do you want to never have to attend meetings, rehabs, or addiction counseling ever again? And do you want to solve your problem from the comfort of home? Then call us at 888-424-2626 to talk with a Freedom Model coach today and experience the Freedom Model difference.